Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast The Endurance of Labor Laws. I am your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan. And today is episode 143, and we're going to dive in a little bit deeper into the National Football League Players Association. But first of all, let me give a big shout out to my listeners because as usual, you guys are awesome. So a big shout out to Minnesota, North Carolina, Washington, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Nevada, California, Virginia, New York, Texas and Oklahoma in terms of countries the United States and the Russian Federation. Okay. So just a little bit of a recap, um the NFLPA, which is the abbreviation for this association, it was founded or formed in 1956. It is a trade union. Again, its legal status is a 501c5 organization. Again, its headquarters is in Washington DC, aka the swamp. Let's hope that that gets cleaned up. And they only have one location, and it is in the United States, so it's not an international union. So that is good for them. But let's go ahead and dive in on this one for sure. It says the National Football League Players Association, or NFLPA, is a labor union representing National Football League NFL players. The NFLPA, which has headquarters in Washington D.C., is led by President J.C. Treader, and we'll talk about him later. and executive director D Morris Smith will also uh, talk about him later founded in 1956 the NFLPA is the second oldest labor union of the four major professional sports leagues it was established to provide players with formal representation to negotiate compensation which i agree with in the terms of a collective bargaining agreement the NFLPA is a member of the AFL CIO which again i'm surprised by this the largest federation of unions in the United States In the early years of the NFL, which goes back to like the 1920s, contractual negotiations took place between individual players, their agents and management. Now, mind you, management was not always great, and sometimes they still are not. So, we need to lift up some prayers uh, for those people for sure. Team owners were reluctant to engage in collective bargaining. I can see why, but at the same time, they need to get over it. A series of strikes and lockouts have occurred throughout the union's existence, largely due to monetary and benefit disputes. between the players and the owners. Now initially the disputes I think me personally I would side on the players because they were not being represented appropriately and they were not being paid appropriately. Now they are being overpaid. So it's like the pendulum has swung back or swung to the other side of the extreme and now they're overpaid. That's where I get concerned with this. So now I'm kind of like I understand where the owners are coming from when there's millions of dollars going to people that They haven't even been to medical school or law school, so that kind of concerns me on that. League rules that punish players for hold on just a second, let me back up. So it says a series of strikes and lockouts have occurred throughout the nation's, or sorry, nation union's existence, largely due to monetary and benefit disputes between the players and the and the owners. League rules that punish players for playing in rival football leagues resulted in litigation. The success of such lawsuits impelled the NFL to negotiate some work rules and minimum payments with the NFLPA. However, the organization was not recognized by the NFL as the official bargaining agent for the players until 1968. In addition to conducting labor negotiations, the NFLPA represents and protects the rights of the players, which I don't blame them on that. The organization's actions include filing grievances against player discipline that it deems too severe. You know, um I don't think it is severe enough considering some of the behavior problems that some of the NFL players tend to have. 
The union also ensures that the terms of the collective bargaining agreement are adhered to by the league and the teams. It negotiates and monitors retirement and insurance benefits and enhances and defends the image of players and their profession, which we have discussed in the previous podcast about two episodes back in regards to how now they over-defend and it's like they they put more emphasis on the image of the players and their profession as opposed to doing what is right, meaning ethics, morals, values, that kind of thing. A little bit of background about this organization. It says the establishment of the National Football League in 1920 featured early franchises haphazardly formed and often saddled with financial difficulties, poor player talent and attendance rates. As the league as the league expanded through the years, players were provided with no formal representation and received few if any benefits. In 1943, Roy Zimmerman's refusal to play an exhibition game without compensation resulted in his trade from the Washington Redskins to the Philadelphia Eagles. With the formation of the competing All-American Football Conference, also known as AAFC in 1946, NFL owners instituted a rule which banned a player for 5 years from NFL associated employment if he left the league to join the AAFC. Now, I'm not surprised by this because Unions tend to overpunish people. It's like you're the with us or against us, and I think that is a very good example of extreme punishment. And I don't think people should be punished for leaving one union and going to another, but that's basically what happened here, which I do not agree with because workers have rights. And so what the NFL was trying to do, they're trying to control where someone works. When this is in the private sector and even in the public sector, people decide who they want to work for. So it's one of those things that people have a right to go where they can make more money, where they feel more comfortable, where they will have more joy and happiness in their work. But unfortunately, these labor unions, they tend to get a little pissy with each other, excuse my language, and it comes back uh, to bite people in the posterior as they say because the behavior is not appropriate for a labor union. It's really weird. I I just don't know why they act like that, but these labor unions, they have been acting squirrely for a long time. way before the NFL was created. So, it's kind of those things I'm surprised, but at the same time I'm not because it tends to be a pattern of behavior with labor unions. It says Bill Rodovich, an offensive lineman, was one player who jumped league, jumped leagues, excuse me. He played for the Detroit Lions in 1945 and then joined the Los Angeles Dons of the AAFC after the team offered him a greater salary. Well, I don't blame him. Subsequently, Rodovich was blacklisted by the NFL and was denied a tryout with the NFL-affiliated San Francisco Seals baseball team of the Pacific Coast League. See, that's that's blackballing someone. That's not right. Unable to attain a job in either league, Rodovich filed a lawsuit against the NFL 1956. I don't blame him. I support him on that. The case uh, listed as Rodovich versus National Football League. made its way to the United States Supreme Court in January 1957 with the court ruling that the NFL constituted a business under American antitrust law and did not enjoy the same immunity according to Major League ba- Major League Baseball, excuse me. This ruling set the foundation for a series of court battles over compensation and employment conditions. I agree with them on this. Goes on to say the NFLPA began when two players from the Cleveland Browns, Abe Gibran and Dante Lavelli, approached a lawyer and former uh, Notre Dame football player Creighton Miller to help form an association to advocate, to advocate, excuse me, for the players. 
Miller was initially reluctant but accepted in 1956. He contacted Don Shula, a Baltimore Colts player at the time, Joe Schmidt of the Detroit Lions, Frank Gifford and Sam Huff of the New York Giants and Norm Von Brooklyn or Brooklyn, excuse me, of the Los Angeles Rams to aid in the development of the association. By November 1956, a majority of the players signed cards allowing the NFLPA to represent them. Players for 11 of the 12 teams in the league voted to join the new association, with the Chicago Bears being the sole holdout. An initial meeting was convened at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, a nice hotel, mind you, in November 1956, where players decided on demands to be submitted to league commissioner Burt Bell. One particularly sore point involved the lack of compensation for training camp and preseason exhibition games. While owners charged admission and benefited from a lucrative series of preseason games, no contract payment was made until a player made a regular season roster. Players would work for up to 8 weeks, risking season or career-ending injury without pay. Now, I completely understand why they would be irritated about that because you're doing a job but not getting any money. So then how do you have access to food, water and shelter? It makes it very difficult to support yourself and your family. The new association's initial agenda also included a league-wide minimum salary. I don't blame them for that. Plus a per diem when teams were on the road. I don't blame them for that. A requirement that uniforms and equipment be paid for and maintained at the club's expense and continued payment of salaries when players were injured. See, here's the thing. that requirement that uniforms and equipment be paid for and maintained at the club's expense that just means that expense gets put onto you and me the people that go to these games and pay those tickets so one of the reasons why NFL game tickets are so expensive is because the players ask for way too much that's a big problem these days the NFLPA hoped to meet with Bell during the owners meeting in 1957 to discuss the demands however no meeting took place The owners for their part were immediately antagonistic to the concept of a players union. I don't blame them because they were fearful of how much money they would then have to pay them. But here's the thing, these owners they could have completely avoided this association by just paying them what they should have been paid, like just treat them as human beings. Then we probably would not have such a large labor union that is overpaying or that is helping players to get overpaid. See, if you just treat others how you want to be treated, then a lot of this corruption within labor unions and trade unions, it would have no place to take place. Like you would, you would prevent it by doing what's right, basically. Um, let's see here. So the owners were antagonistic to the concept of a players' union. You know, I'm not surprised. A position um, not very much liked by Miller. Then an assistant coach with the Cleveland Browns. was removed from the team's annual photo at the insistence of head coach and general manager Paul Brown. Miller and other union founders were taken aback by Paul Brown's staunch view that it was quote um both just and necessary that management could cut, trade, bench, blackball and own in whatever this word is, uh anyone and everyone that it wanted. Sometimes the writers of articles I think they just use really difficult words to try and sound like geniuses but I'm really not impressed with that at all because I think if you want people to understand what you're saying you need to use words that people know because whenever someone starts using random words that no one uses anymore it's like okay did they just read the dictionary and pick out a really difficult word just so they can sound like they went to Harvard or Yale I'm not impressed with that at all to me that is stupidity 
So it goes on to say Miller continued to represent the NFLPA in their early days, unable to win the owners' attention by forming the union. The NFLPA threatened to bring an antitrust lawsuit against the league. The antitrust laws are meant to protect quote free and fair competition in the marketplace and prohibit practices that may give industries or businesses an unfair advantage over their competitors. Rather than face another lawsuit, the owners agreed to pay or sorry agreed to a league minimum salary of $5,000, $50 for each ex- uh, exhibition game played and medical and hospital coverage. Why those things were not off- offered from the beginning, I don't understand. Because Medical and hospital coverage is basic when you're doing a job that is dangerous and being a football player is not the same as working as a receptionist. Nothing against receptionists, but football players they tend to get hurt really bad sometimes. Although most of the NFLPA's requests were met, the owners did not enter into a collective bargaining agreement with the association or formally recognize it as the player's exclusive bargaining representative. instead agreeing to change the standard player contract and alter governing documents to reflect the deal. So they're trying to avoid this labor union getting so much power. Is what they're trying to do. But it's kind of like too little too late kind of thing. From the inception of the NFLPA, its members were divided over whether it should act as a professional association or a union. Against the wishes of NFLPA presidents Uh, Pete Retzlaff and Bernie Parrish Miller ran the association as a grievance committee rather than engaging in collective bargaining. That's kind of coming from a weaker stance because if you're always looking at things from a grievance point of view, then you're always offended. Like you're not being proactive, you're being reactive. And that is a sign of weakness. And I think uh, I think the guys that were more for the collective bargaining, I think they understood that concept. The standard collective bargaining agreement is a contract between organized workers and management that determines the wages and hours worked by employees and can also determine the scope of one's work and what benefits employees receive. The association continued to use the threat of antitrust litigation over the next few years as a lever to gain better benefits including a pension plan and health insurance. I don't blame them for that because they're probably trying to protect themselves and their families. In the 1960s, the NFL also faced competition from the New American Football League, also known as AFL. NFL players viewed the new league as potential leverage for them to improve their contracts. The NFL tried to discourage this idea by changing the owner-controlled pension plan to add a, a provision saying that a player could lose his pension if he went to another league. Now that might sound that might sound kind of harsh. However, it's no different than when you go from one job to another and you may or may not be able to take your 401k with you. So, it's one of those things that this is, you know, the, the NFL and these football players, their jobs, they are in the private sector. They are not in the public sector. So, needless to say, when you switch from one company to another, that's literally what you're doing. You are switching from one company to another so different people are going to be paying your benefits and your retirement. So that's why some people lose their benefits and their retirement just like anybody else. But unfortunately the NFL, you know, whenever they create this labor union or trade union, they were trying to make it seem like they are the exception to the rule in the private sector and that created favoritism. And that's why they are overpaid and they have way more uh fancy benefits than the average person, which is very unfortunate. Because my personal opinion is is that if if cushy benefits and really fancy benefits are good enough for NFL players, they're good enough for you and they're good enough for me. So why don't we have them?
that kind of thing. Okay. Let's see here. It says on January 14th, 1964, so going back in time a little bit, players in the newer league formed the AFL Players Association and elected linebacker Tom Addison of the Boston Patriots as president. Rather than working with the AFLPA, the NFLPA chose to remain apart and tried to block the merger between the two leagues in 1966, though lack of funding prevented it from mounting a formal challenge. With the merger complete, the players could no longer use the leverage of being able to sign with an AFL team to obtain more money. Uh, Mr. Parrish, upset with the ineffectiveness of the association, proposed forming a players union that would be independent of the AFL, or sorry, excuse me, independent of the NFLPA with the assistance of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. <laughs> wow. Okay, if you don't remember, the Teamsters union is pretty dirty. Um they will say or do anything and they are a bully. So the fact that they are willing to get assistance from them says they're desperate for power. Um because the the uh, Brotherhood of Teamsters Union, they're kind of like the big bully on the playground basically. They will definitely shake anyone down for money. It's kind of what it's like. So guard your lunch money for sure. Hide it in your shoes. Um let's see here. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters push for the NFLPA to join the trucking union. In early November 1967, Mr. Parrish, with support from former Cleveland Browns player Jim Brown, began distributing union cards, union cards to form a Teamsters affiliate known as the American Federation of Pro Athletes. The NFLPA rejected the overture at its meeting in Hollywood, Florida during the first week of January 1968 and declared itself an independent union. Although Mr. Parrish's proposal was defeated, Miller left his position as counsel to the union. He was later replaced by two Chicago labor lawyers, Don Shulman and Bernie Baum. Now, in regards to the recognition and certification, it's one of those things that in order for a labor union to exist, they have to pass out cards to people, basically saying, "I'm going to sign up for this and I support this union." And in order for their union to be created, they have to have, I think, either 49% or 50% of the workers agree to form a union otherwise no union can be created. So that's why they were passing out union cards trying to get signatures. So it goes on to say 6 months after the NFLPA declared itself an independent union, many players were dissatisfied with the lack of compensation teams provided and voted to strike on July 3rd, 1968. after official discussions with the owners stalled. So right away, not long after forming their association, they're already striking. So I kind of find that to be ridiculous. At the same time, I understand what they're what they're doing and why they're doing it. It's just I don't completely agree with it. Um I think if you strike all the time, I think you're a loser and you're not doing the job. So that's just my personal opinion. The owners countered by declaring a lockout. By July 14, 1968, The brief work stoppage came to an end. Although a contract resulted, many players felt that the agreement did not net them as many benefits as they had hoped. The owners agreed to contribute about 1.5 million dollars, and this is back in the late 60s, so that's a lot of money. Contribute about 1.5 million dollars to the pension fund with minimum salaries of $9,000 for rookies, $10,000 for veterans. and $50 per exhibition game. There was as yet no neutral arbitration for disputes. As the merger on the AFL and NFL became effective in 
the unions agreed to meet for the first time in January that year. The NFL players wanted Ed Meter, who was the president-elect of the NFLPA prior to the merger, to become president of the newly combined association, while the AFL players wanted Jack Kemp. The compromise was John Mackey of the Baltimore Colts, an NFL player before the merger, which was grouped with former AFL teams in the American Football Conference. The AFL players agreed to Mackey's election on the condition that former AFL player Alan Miller would become general counsel. Though the NFL owners were open to recognizing the union, their representatives requested lawyers not be present during negotiations. <laughs> I can understand why because a lawyer knows what they're doing. Something the players were unwilling to agree to. I don't blame them. This prompted the players to petition the National Labor Relations Board for union certification. I don't blame them on that. The NFLPA voted to strike on July 3, 1970, after having filed an unfair labor practices charge with the NLRB the previous month. The strike ended on August 3, just in time to avoid cancellation of preseason games. A new four-year contract was reached after the owners threatened to cancel the season. With the new agreement, the union won the right for players to bargain through their own agents with the clubs, and minimum salaries were increased yet again to $12,500 for rookies and $13,000 for veterans. Also, players' pensions were improved. I agree with this. And dental care was added to the players' insurance plans. I agree with that. Players also gained the right to elect representation on the league's retirement board and the right to impartial arbitration for injury grievances. Following the 1970 agreement, many union representatives were released by their teams. Unfazed, the players were determined to create a stronger union through better communication. Attorney Ed Garvey was hired by the NFLPA in 1971. to act as their first executive director and the NFLPA became officially certified as a union by the NLRB that same year. And then that's when headquarters were established in Washington Washington DC and a campaign was launched to help inform players of their rights. Now let's see. I think we'll go ahead and talk about the 1974 strike. Okay, so regards to this strike, very interesting here. So it says the NFLPA challenged the so-called Roselle or Rosella rule as a violation of federal antitrust laws in a lawsuit filed by President John Mackey and allied union leaders in 1971. The rule, named after Commissioner Pete Rosell, allowed the commissioner to award compensation, which include players to a team losing a free agent if both the signing team and the team the player was departing could not come to an agreement on compensation. This rule limited player movement as few teams were willing to sign high profile free agents only to risk having their rosters raided. With the 1970 agreement set to expire, the players went on strike on July 1, 1974. In addition to the Rozelle rule, the players demanded the elimination of the option clause, impartial arbitration of disputes, elimination of the draft and waiver system and individual rather than uniform contracts the strike did not stop the 1974 preseason from going forward the nfl used all rookie squads as replacement players to play out the preseason schedule until the strike was resolved well good for the rookies they get some exposure the strike lasted until august 10th 1974 when the players returned to training camp without a new contract instead choosing to pursue free agency through the Mackey lawsuit filed 3 years before 
While the courts ruled in favor of the players in 1976, the union found that making progress in bargaining was more difficult to achieve. The Roselle rule was invalidated by the court, which found it constituted a refusal to deal and was therefore in violation of the Sherman Act as it deterred franchises from signing free agents. However, the change did not achieve true free true free agency as compensation remained tied to draft picks. that were awarded based on the salary of the departing free agent and teams still maintained a right of first refusal the NFL and NFLPA agreed to a new collective bargaining agreement in March 1977 that ran until 1982 so needless to say they had another strike and it started in 1982 but we will finish that up in the next podcast but needless to say a little bit about their history it's good to know about because i think I think this really represents just how kind of semi ridiculous labor unions are. However, they do have a good foundation. It's like the moment they form a union, they go into strike mode immediately because it's about money. It's not always about the safety of the game or the safety of the job. It seems to me like they were just trying to get more and more money. And so now a lot of these NFL players are multimillionaires. I mean, good for them, but they're totally jipping the American public. Like, there's really no competition. See, here's the thing: labor unions they greatly inflate the prices of goods, and that's why, excuse me, NFL pricing of tickets are so high. Even if you have like Ticketmaster or one of these other things that you can use to get to uh, get tickets, there really isn't fair trade or. enough competition really to lower the the price of tickets. I mean even a lousy seat at an NFL game can cost $1000 per seat. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So, needless to say, one reason why NFL players are overpaid is because the owners and management and executives they're going to make their pound of flesh either way. We know that to be true. Unfortunately because Whenever you have a labor union or a trade union involved with I would say wages, not just benefits and things like that, but specifically with wages, it directly impacts the price of goods, which in the case of NFL is the price of games, it's the price of tickets, it's the price of concession stands, it's the price of beer. If they serve beer there, like all of this stuff is connected and also whatever these pay, uh, players get paid It also affects the price of goods outside of the NFL, meaning like let's say for example, Nike signs a contract with an NFL player and the NFL player is going to do commercials and things of that nature. Well, that increases the cost of that shoe or that good that he is promoting in their commercial. So, needless to say, the consumer, the customer, which is you and me, we are paying the the hefty price of these labor union contracts for their wages because they have minimum salary set at such an extremely high level that it's causing inflation basically within their type of labor. And it's ridiculous. I'm all for them making a lot of money. I think what they do is awesome. You know, not very many people are talented to do what NFL players do, but but at the same time that does not give them permission to affect our currency and also it doesn't give them permission to basically have a stranglehold on an entire industry which is the NFL 
and then raise the price of goods right and left just because they think they deserve it. You know, to me, that's no different than a spoiled, rotten little kid, as usual, in my analogy, throwing a hissy fit on aisle seven at a Toys R Us. You know, because it's the consumer and, and fair trade and, and competition within the private sector that should be determining the price of goods. That's how it normally is. But unfortunately, because of labor unions and trade unions, when they get involved to the extreme like this, it greatly affects the cost of goods so much so that the average person cannot afford to attend these games like i don't know anyone except maybe one or two people that have been to an an nfl game but i don't even think it was like a fancy game i think it was just you know kind of like a doesn't really matter game and i don't mean that disrespectfully but there are some games that they play that it doesn't really matter who wins it's just they're they're playing for money so I'm saying that it's very rare for the average person to attend things like this just because the cost of goods are so high and it shouldn't be it's it's sports. So please recognize that whenever you are overpaying professional athletes, yes they are professional. But when you overpay them, you're the one that's paying their salary. It's not the owners and the business owners or management or you know just these companies like Nike and Adidas and and things like that it's you and me that are paying those prices because of whatever we purchase whether it's goods or services we are the ones that are paying their paycheck are you a millionaire i mean if you are god bless you that's wonderful but i think we really need to take stock of how how labor unions and trade unions really manipulate our currency and I'm trying to be polite about this which is why sometimes I hesitate but um I think they've gotten off track especially this association because it's one thing to to want uh, your players to have to have access to being able to earn a living that's great but to be millionaires like this and then they get away with a lot of stuff that the average person cannot and should not get away with. You know, I kind of have to draw the line in the sand and be like, "Okay, is this really professional behavior?" You know, I understand they are professional athletes, but they typically do not act um or behave in a professional manner, whether on the field or off the field, especially off the field. So why are we paying them millions of dollars to be professional athletes when they don't act professional? I find that very odd because I think that if you pay someone to do something they should do it because it's like services rendered kind of thing. It's no different than, you know, let's say you have a clogged sink or something. You have a plumber come over and plumbers are not cheap. You know, considering how much you pay for maintenance of your house, don't you expect them to do a professional job because you you've called in a professional and don't you expect them to behave in a professional manner? I know I do. So why is it any different for people that play in the NFL? It shouldn't be any different. But there are exceptions that are made all the time for NFL players because of their social status. And their social status is protected by associations like this and by their team and their managers and their business owners and at all costs. Why? Because of money. 
It's not because they actually care about the players because they don't. I truly think that if the teams and the owners and the business managers actually cared or, or even the league, if the NFL actually cared about its players, then they would not let players play when they are injured. Like we we wouldn't have all these problems that we have, but I mean, it just seems to me like they don't really value the the human body and they don't value the human soul. It's just the dollar that they value. You know, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. If you love God, then you're not going to have a problem with money. But if you love money, you will have problems. And I think this is what is going on within this association as well as in the NFL. And I think it's been going on for a long time. And I think the ball got rolling I think in the late 60s early 70s when they started having these strikes. Because I think they recognized really quick, hey, why don't we just take a a page out of the Teamsters book and just be jerks about this? Now some of their lawsuits are valid. I will grant them that. I think that if there is an antitrust law violation, they should be sued. I think if ever your rights are violated, you need to go to court because your rights belong to you. They don't belong to anybody else. They belong to you. And that's why that's why you have rights as as an individual. Now as a group or or a collective or a community or a commune, you have individual rights in this country. If you are a citizen, if you're not a citizen, you don't have rights here. Just like if I lived in another country and I wasn't a citizen there, I wouldn't have citizenship rights because I'm not a citizen. But being that I am an American and I live in America, I have American citizenship and I have American rights and they're protected at a state and federal level. So for sure, you know, to me it doesn't matter how much money someone makes if their rights have been violated in any way, they have every right to go to court and to get justice. Every right. I don't care if they're billionaires, tr- trillionaires, quadrillionaires. I don't care if they make $10,000 a year. I don't care if they're broke. Someone's rights are their rights and they should be they should be protected and they are protected and again they are protected at a state and federal level so a lot of the lawsuits actually all of them that i can see all of the lawsuits that have been fought uh, within the nfl or that they have filed with our court system have been civil cases meaning they went to federal court which is why some of them went all the way up to the supreme court So that's why it's important to have good justices on the Supreme Court. And I've seen good justices that are both Republican. I've seen let me rephrase. I've seen Supreme Court justices that are good whether they are Republican or Democrat. But I have seen some bad ones that are Republican or Democrat. So I think we need to be careful who we are electing or sorry not electing. Um appointing to these very important positions of power within our court system because you know it's not just at the federal level that it matters it also matters at the state level so for example whenever there are there are elections and I'll close with this whenever there are elections sometimes within your state you are having to vote on you know a judge or something or maybe your attorney general or your 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 state attorney or whatever You need to vote on that. Like you need to really recognize who is operating and working in your in your court system because technically the courts belong to the people. It's for the people by the people. 
It's, it's not managed or run by elitists or bureaucrats, although they would love to do that. You know, this is why whenever we, we think about justice or we see a, a symbol of justice, typically you see a woman draped in kind of a, a toga-looking garment from like the Greek or Roman times, and she has a sash covering her eyes, and she's holding scales. That's because justice is blind. Meaning, justice does not show favoritism. Meaning, whenever you go into court, the only way that you can get a fair trial is if there's no favoritism. Meaning, no money is being exchanged behind closed doors. Now, mind you, that kind of stuff, unlawful stuff, happens in other countries. Especially like Mexico, Jamaica, parts of Europe, um, It's usually second and third world countries where there's a lot of corruption, like Africa, South Africa, you know, countries like that, nations like that. Um, so just be aware that even though our court systems are not perfect, they are still far above and beyond better than any other court system on the planet. Because here in the United States, we very much honor and respect the rights of the individual. And we know that because if ever... Your rights or my rights are violated. We can take that person or company or whoever to court. We may or may not win. You know, but you have every right to take them to court. And I look at it this way. Whatever I do, I go in it to win it. I go in it to win it. That's how we need to look at things like this. Like when you are fighting for yourself and you're fighting for your rights and you're standing up for what is right, you can't have this, well, I think I'll do this. Or, well, yeah, I'll kind of do it. No, it's either yes or no. Are you going to stand up and fight? It's yes or no. Because if you're not single-minded and if you don't have a goal, then you might as well not go to court at all. So just FYI, be aware of that because your rights very much do matter. Very, very, very much do matter. But I will go ahead and end this podcast as usual until next time. I pray that you're happy, healthy, and whole. That you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.